You are listening to the Our View podcast, where we aim to educate, raise awareness, and change the tone of conversation about disabilities. Every week, we bring you episodes that are centered around topics related to disabilities. As the host, it is my hope that you are not just inspired by these stories that are shared, but that you put some action behind your inspiration to do something that improves the lives of those who live with disabilities. I thank you, our loyal listeners, for your support and remind you to subscribe to our YouTube channel at Our View for Life and to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to tell us what you enjoy most about the podcast. Let's get into this conversation. I would like to welcome everyone back to another episode of the Our View podcast, where we aim to educate, raise awareness, and change the tone of conversation about disabilities. I'm happy to welcome my guest today, Kira Wackett, to the podcast. So thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Um, I'm excited for our conversation. Me too. Thank you for having me. Yes. Uh, can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, um, you know, who you are and uh, your career? And uh, I always like to ask people what they do for fun in their uh, free time, if they have any. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I am. So I am a licensed mental health therapist. I specialize in shame and anxiety, eating disorders and trauma. So there's a lot of intersection there, but I think really the thing that I work with anybody on is shame or the fear of not being good enough, the fear of not belonging, the fear of being less than in some way. And that really is something that unifies sort of the collective human experience through different ways. So that's a lot of what I do. I am a mom to a newly three-year-old who just turned three last month. Um, and right now I am, so I would say it's it's busy, but it's Fun. So we actually just closed and bought our first house. So I am in the process of navigating what that means to be a homeowner and to go through the process, to be excited, but overwhelmed, to be doing it with a toddler is a very unique learning experience for me. Um, but I love those things. And I love sort of the opportunity to be learning and experiencing this together. I think Whenever people ask though about what I, what's my most fun thing, I like to take ordinary moments or things and try to make them special. So if, you know, even as we've been moving, the first day we took a load of boxes over to the car, we picked this like some sort of, it's a sparkling probiotic something, something. It's, you know, I think it's like a non bacteria kombucha thing but it's safe for little kids so we like picked one and we went in and we toasted it and each of us got to put a box in our room so it was like trying to make this thing special and I find that having gone through a lot of my own trauma having navigated life and unfortunately spending a lot of time in sort of a negative mindset or a trauma-oriented mindset for a long time I try now to take those everyday moments and find joy in them because there are obviously those pockets of, oh gosh, I just want to go on a hike or I want to go do this, or I love when I can go on trips, but those don't sustain you as much as the everyday joy I think does. Wow. That's so true. Making something, finding something in every day and in, in, in everyday life that will, uh, you know, be special. That's uh, a really great, great thing. I, um, I start every it's funny, I, I start it and then I stop, but I have a gratitude journal. And, mm -hmm. you know, I try to do it in, in at least 30 day increments of finding something that was good about every day, something that um, I'm grateful for, someone I'm grateful for, 
or something I'm looking mm -hmm. forward to. Um, yeah, so that really helps to, uh, you know, make every day uh, special and, and important. And uh, three-year-olds, yeah. three-year-olds are a lot of fun. I don't, <laughs> I don't have yeah. any kids, but <laughs> I don't have any kids, but I have a lot of friends who have kids and three-year-olds yes. are a lot they're a lot of fun. <laughs> they make that transition to where they're now. And my daughter is very emotionally in tune. I think a lot of kids are. She's just uh -huh. also very verbally expressive. So I'm able mm -hmm. to experience it with her in different ways. But there are, they start to kind of become little adults. Like they're not adults. They're still kids. But the uh -huh. way they can engage, you can start to hold conversations. You can, like I, some of my favorite things are just going on like mom-daughter dates because <laughs> she gets as geeked out and excited about a Disney playlist in the car as I do. And then we can like go do some fun thing together and talk about it. And so it is, it's, it's wonderful. It is also, I have never, I think having a kid for me has been the biggest learning curve for how to be a good human, mm -hmm. how to be compassionate, how to talk about things, you know, major topics, like what we're going to talk about today and really thinking about the conversations I have with my three-year-old about how different people function, exist, live in the world, racism, sexism, things like that. But it's also just given me the opportunity to think about, again, like, what does it mean to be present, to just be here in this moment? Because they only know that, you know, uh -huh. we we are constantly thinking about the past, the future, but they only know this moment. And so she's such a good reframe to me to be like, be here, be in yeah. the now, allow yourself to release all the rumination, the panic, the worry worry the hypervigilance like just be here it's okay yeah definitely i i agree i had um was with some friends a couple of weeks ago and there um well, she's four but um we were just sitting and and we were talking i forget what we were talking about and her mom just walks by and she goes do i even want to know what you two were talking about i said probably not but <laughs> <laughs> she said i look over i see you laughing i see her laughing and i'm just like i really want to know but uh, then I, but then i'm not sure if i do i was <laughs> I yeah said, I exactly <laughs> exactly i was like i was just asking her about some cartoon or something and you know i said we just started having yeah. a conversation like you said you can really uh you know start having conversations with with them at that age and it's yeah. just uh, it's just so fun. Yeah. <laughs> so um, mm -hmm. for our conversation today, I, um, I, I have been really interested in, in wanting to talk about uh, this topic. And with you uh, being a licensed, licensed mental health uh, therapist, um, I, I think it's a great uh, topic for you uh, to discuss with uh, our listeners. And that is, um, so there's a, a different, uh, there are different types of disabilities, visible and invisible. Uh, congenital, which are ones that um, people are born with, like myself, I was born with spina bifida, and then um, those uh, disabilities that are acquired through either illness or an accident. Um, and while they can all, you know, they're, they're all different, every person that has any type of disability, and like I, I said before on the podcast, if you've met one person with spina bifida or insert any disability, you've met one person with that <laughs> diagnosis. Uh, so mm -hmm. every person is different. Um, but I, I really wanted to talk about the, um, I guess the role that shame or um, a, the sense of being less than and grief and loss that can occur um, for someone who has an acquired disability. And even those who, who were born with their disabilities, I, I know I'll uh, talk about my own experience with that as well. Um, 
so can we uh, get into that conversation a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I think, again, I know I mentioned this a couple of minutes ago, but shame is ultimately your fear. It's a very specific form of fear that gets triggered when there is a threat to connection or belonging in the world. The reason shame is so potent and powerful is because we live, live in systems and communities wherein we are told there's a ladder system. People are better or worse. If your body is, let's think about weight, let's think about race and skin color, let's think about gender and or sexual orientation, gender identity and presentation, all these different things. The where you go to school, how much money you have, what street you grew up on, what state you're from. There's this way that the world sort of got laid out for us that there are better or worse people. There are better than or in worse forms of existence. And on some level, we know, gosh, I don't want to live in that world, but we've been indoctrinated with it our whole life. And so when we think about people that experience any form of disability, there is, I think, as you mentioned, it's, it can be a very different experience for every individual. And there is sort of a, a very stark change when somebody is born with their disability or if they are, if they acquire it later on. Both versions of that story, there's an awareness of sort of lacking because again, as much as you could have caregivers, you could have supports, role models, all sorts of people that are telling you that everything is normal and this is how you function and everyone functions differently, but we are still in a world that exists that is designed for certain people to thrive. So that awareness is there for everybody. The thing that I know you were excited about and I'm excited about to talk through is the immediate identity shift that happens for somebody when they acquire a disability in their life, because it is, it's basically being at whatever point you are on the ladder and somebody tossing you off. And they already had shame because shame is a universal experience. So that existed prior to that change. And now it's like somebody handed them the card to say, you already thought you were garbage. Now look at this. You're never going to be anything. You're never going to be able to exist. And so there isn't the freedom to grieve, to find a way to integrate, to experience it, there is the threat to you better figure out how to move forward and make yourself worthy of connection immediately because the cards are stacked against you. Wow. Yeah, it's, um, wow, I, I love the, um, the latter uh, example that you gave that, you know, where you grew up or what school you went to and, and things like that. And, um, like I said, for me, I, I can speak for myself personally. I was born with my disability. Yeah. Um, but like you said, trying to, um, you know, find ways to make connections with people and to find things that you have in common with people to make those connections. And, you know, I didn't play sports growing up and mm -hmm. I, um, you know, I couldn't ride a bike. I, I ended up getting an arm powered um bike eventually mm. but you know I couldn't ride bikes like like all the other kids or um you know really use a playground like other kids could so like trying to find ways to connect with um my peers as as a young you know a child uh even you know got to be difficult and then um you know not realizing right away but you know as I got older into my teens realizing that uh you know, I guess those connections weren't genuine sometimes and people were just yeah. feeling bad for me and 
uh, they were, you know, feeling sad for me because I was, a, uh, I had a disability and, um, yeah, you know, having to realize that and saying like, oh, wow, I thought they were, <laughs> thought they were a good person, thought they were a good friend. Right. And it's just like, oh no, they just felt sorry for me. Um, right. But then on the flip side of that, really finding the genuine connections and, um, you know, having those longtime connections, I'm 41 and um, just what today is, is today Tuesday. <laughs> so just on Saturday, I was with um, a friend of mine who I've known since we were in middle school and mm-hmm. uh, out celebrating with her and her, her husband and uh, their children and, and her family. Uh, celebrating her 40th birthday. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, experiencing that, and that's the same uh, family I've talked about on the podcast before. I went to Maine with them for a week uh, over this uh, Mm -hmm. summer of 2022. So it's, it's, you know, it was difficult to to make those connections because of the feelings that I had within myself of, uh, you know, feeling less than and and not uh, on the same level as um, those people I met who, who didn't have disabilities. Um, or disabilities right. I couldn't see, I should say. And, um, right. you know, so so it was really, uh, you know, it's something I, I really wanted to talk about and, and bring that up in this conversation. <clears throat> yeah, and I, I think a lot too, as you say that, you know, some middle school, elementary school, most of us that are past that point in our life would never opt to go back to that place, mm-hmm. regardless of what aspects of our intersecting identities there are, because it is such a, tumultuous journey of loneliness and that constant sort of veil lifting and realizing that not every friendship is genuine and and we don't know that up front and we just we're longing for connection and when we feel that we're going to kind of take anything that comes our way and it's I think the hard part is you know and again this is any aspect of our identity we need, there's this balance that has to exist of not pretending it's not a part of us. We don't want people to just ignore it and pretend it's not there. We want people to ask questions, be curious, know things about it, know how to make it a part of the conversation. But what happens is I think sometimes that's the only thing people see. And particularly, I think when there is guilt, you know, whether that's white guilt, cisgender guilt, able-bodied guilt, whatever that is, then it comes out as pity. It comes out in that way. I did that once I worked for the National Alliance on Mental Illness and we had a a conference that we did every year at the state level. And there was a scholarship for people that had a mental illness. They could apply to get a scholarship to attend the conference. And we would review these and, you know, try to give out as many as we possibly could to get as many people in the space as as we could possibly have in the space and really make sure that people felt like they were co-owning a conference that was designed to talk about mental health. And I remember at one point there was a, a deadline for the scholarships and I kept extending it for different people. And I'm like, oh, well, they have this and they have this and they have this. And somebody on, it was called the Consumer Council. So it was all made up of people that identified as someone that had a mental illness or experienced mental illness, whether it was in remission or not. And they said, why are you not holding them to the same standard that you would other people? And I remember immediately feeling what I know now as as shame, but it was this like, what? me? No, no, no. I'm a good person. And then I had to pause and be like, oh no, I, I missed that one. Cause what I did is I wasn't giving them 
the people that were applying the same opportunity to match the same expectations. And that was a form of pity. That was seeing them as incapable of doing something the same as someone else. And so those little things, I think you experience in those friendships, you experience it with teachers, with Mm -hmm. caregivers early on. So that's what formulates for us this idea of oh, see, that's another notch against us. That's another thing we have to make up for. You know, someone's going to be annoyed when they have to hold the door open for me, or these doors aren't accessible, or gosh, I can't go to this same place that all my friends want to go to because there's no, you know, wheelchair accessibility. And now I feel like the buzzkill. And it's these constant little reminders that, again, the world and sometimes the people around you aren't always aware of it, but can be operating from that place. And it's that, I think, build up in all of us that makes the shame so prominent. So then when it is somebody down the road that acquires a disability, it's the reminder of everything that they've witnessed and experienced and the system they've existed in, but now it's personal. So now it's the grief, it's the loss, and it's the realization of everything that they've held and they've existed in is now about them and what their experience will be. And and obviously maybe to different degrees for different people, but it's going to be different. And that is really hard to acclimate the mind and body to. Yeah. Wow. I um, want to switch the order of the questions um, that I sent you because I, I think this uh, fits into what we are um, talking about right now. And that is um, mm-hmm. what advice or tools or helpful things can you offer uh, for someone who, uh, just uh, acquired their disability and um, when they have a conversation with family and friends about their disability diagnosis to help them lessen any feelings um, of shame or guilt that or pity that may be uh, that people may be feeling about themselves or uh, their family member may be feeling toward them. Yeah. Well, I don't know, you may have seen this or talked about this before in a different episode, but there was a TED talk that was given by a woman that survived the Boston Marathon bombing. And she was a dancer and a runner and she lost her leg. And she talked about the experience of being in the hospital after this happened. And the idea that what ends up happening is all these people that would come visit her in the hospital, it ended up being about her taking care of them and like their pain for what she was going through, or people didn't come and talk to her. People sort of fell off the face of the earth because they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to handle it. One of the things I think about if you're the individual that's experiencing that is to recognize that other people's reactions and responses are not about you. They're about their own discomfort to what's going on in the situation. And so I think for many of us, it's giving ourselves enough space to feel whatever we're feeling before we feel like we have to hold anything for anybody else. You know, so when you are trying to have these conversations, when you are going in there, I think sometimes there's this sense of urgency that we need to go and talk about things, make it okay. But the point being, it's not your job to make it okay for everybody else. And I think that's a really important distinction for people to have is that other people's discomfort with how your life has changed is not your responsibility to take care of. So I think sort of some internal mindset shifts, and that's true of anything that happens. And again, we can, I remember when my grandma got COPD and she was now had an oxygen tank and people would, you know, she loved it when kids would ask her questions or they were curious about it. 
but she wasn't interested in start, you know, when she would have to do something differently or things were different and someone was annoyed or uncomfortable or scared. She's like, that's not mine to hold. And I'm okay releasing that. That's not something that is, hmm. I'm going to take on. And so I think for a lot of us, it's shame is going to make you feel like you're the problem because the whole point of people think about shame versus guilt, some listeners might've heard this before, but shame is this belief of I'm bad. Guilt is this idea that you did something bad or something is wrong. It sort of is a check in the value system. So if we feel shame about our disability, the disability then is this another notch to say you as a person are the problem, which then is going to make you come into these interactions feeling like you have to make up for it with everyone else. So I think first trying to separate and say, this is something that happened to me and it will define you for a period of time because that's mm -hmm. what happens. Any sort of grief, any sort of major loss, any big change, it will feel like it defines you for a period of time, giving it space for that, but then really stepping back and saying, this isn't the only part of me. Again, I don't want to not have this be a part of the conversation in the way that I exist in the world, but this isn't the only part about who I am. I think the other piece that I would tell people in that then is a lot of the times I do a lot of work in grief, particularly around major traumas. I think we have, and particularly, you know, I live in the U.S. I've spent my whole life in the U.S. So I can't speak to other cultures and even more collectivistic cultures within the U.S. and different identities and faiths and things. But a significant amount of, I think, the world's population, but particularly here, we move through griefs. We expect to move through grief, I should say, so fast. Everything's like, you just got to get through it and be fine. And we are so uncomfortable with painful emotions, mm -hmm. anger, sadness, loss, depression. As soon as we feel it, we've got to hide it. And we've been conditioned to see that. And I think that is the one of the biggest yellow flags for anybody is, are you asking yourself to be through the emotion before your body's ready? You're not going to get stuck there if you give yourself space to feel it. You're going to get stuck there if you keep trying to stuff it because it will come out as resentment. It will come out as pain. It will come out in other ways. And so I know I'm giving a very long answer to this question, but I really think the biggest parts in the beginning is for people to, to name and validate their emotions, to be very clear on what is and is not the role they're going to take on with other people. And to start to separate themselves from the change that's happened from their body. Who are you as a person? That is, again, a part of your identity. Make space for it. How do we integrate it? How do we find acceptance and hopefully one day love and internalization of that, but also not allowing that to be the only thing that we see? And then I think the rest of the tools, the how you talk about it, when you talk about it, what you say, that can come. But I don't think it can come until you do, do those things and find that sense of inner peace. That was not a long answer at all. That was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, this is good. This is good. <laughs> and I, I think what you said about grief and allowing yourself to experience that those emotions, however negative they may feel, um, it, it's important to do that and not to rush it and to just, like you said, you won't get stuck there. But if you try to rush through right. it, that things, it, it keeps showing up in different ways. Um, so right. that's, you know, and that's how it, it, you stay stuck there because you don't let yourself experience that sadness and that loss um, mm -hmm. and the anger and uh, what is it, the uh, stages of grief that, that you have to mm -hmm. go through. Um, mm -hmm. It's, it's really so important. Um, and just not, you know, like you said, not taking responsibility for, you know, the other people, uh, 
you know, and, right. and what they, you know, what they are, are feeling about your, about your loss, about your, uh, your right. experience. That is uh, a really, <clears throat> a really big thing. And it's a difficult thing because, you know, you want to, you know, you want everybody in your life to be okay, your friends and your family. And, you know, you try to be that strong one and all that, that they say you should be. And yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that can be very draining at times um, and not, and not healthy. And there is, <clears throat> right. And there is, I do, there's a lot of different ways to say it, but one of the things I do think can be helpful and, and maybe for people are like, okay, I've done some of this work. What do I say in those moments? One of the things I think is super important again in those interactions is this boundary setting, assertive communication, it's all an invitation for people to connect with you more deeply. Mm -hmm. We feel uncomfortable. You know, if somebody's doing something like, gosh, I don't want them to feel bad because, you know, they keep saying this thing and it, it kind of hurts my feelings or it kind of sucks. So I'll deal with it. I'll take it on. I'll handle it. I'll be fine. Like you said, you want everybody to be okay. We don't want to hurt them. So we accept the unintentional hurt which isn't okay. Because again, that sort of reinforces that ladder system of you should absorb that. We're not going to hold somebody else accountable. Instead, it's also not saying, well, they're the, they're the problem. They're the villain, but instead saying, what's the invitation for them to connect with me more deeply? They might not take it. And then I have to grieve that. I have to be okay with that if they don't respond that way. But when somebody's saying something, it's being able to let them know, Hey, when I know you care a lot about me, or I know that this is something you really want to be supportive in for me, you don't want me to feel alone, whatever that part is, validate that if you know that that's there, if that feels true to you. And then say, and this thing that you're doing and focus on the thing, not the person, because again, we're not trying to shame them. You're not a bad person. This thing you're doing doesn't feel good. When you do this, it makes me feel less than. When you do this, it makes me feel responsible to, to make you feel better. When you do this blank, whatever that is, I feel this way. And this is how it's affecting our relationship. Something that would be more helpful or in these situations, could you blank? And it's that invitation of saying, I know you really care about me. This thing is not reflecting that. It actually hurts really, really bad. So here's a way that I'm telling you actually really works for me because I know you care about me and you want to do that. So that's where sort of the roundabout invitation comes into play. But again, we can't do that. An individual can't do that until they've grieved and moved through and made peace with what's going on with them and gotten very clear on their right to have needs as a result of any aspect of themselves and then to communicate it with other people. So, so well said. Oh my goodness. That was really, that was good. Um, and I, I love the focusing on the thing that they're doing and not the person because that, mm -hmm. you know, you don't want, like you said, you don't want them to start feeling the shame. Um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the person it's, it's the thing that they're doing that is causing the, uh, the, the not right. so good feelings. And, um, so, and then, and then, as you said, offering a chance to, you know, instead of doing this, can you do this instead? Can you, you mm -hmm. know, can, can we work at it from this way, from this angle and this perspective, rather than the approach that they're, that they're taking currently? That's, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's always helpful to, um, you know, to have a solution, to have a, um, you know, something that fixes what they're, what they're doing to show um, how it can be done in a, a better way, a, a more beneficial way for everybody, I think is, um, you know, a really big thing there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the last question on this topic um, that I have for you is um, about forgiveness and how forgiveness mm-hmm. uh, can have a positive impact um, on the mindset of someone who uh, is experiencing a disability. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions about forgiveness is if we think about forgiveness of other people, we've sort of been taught that it's saying it's okay, it can be sweeping something under the rug, it's a form of absolution. With ourselves, it's this idea of, well, I can't forgive myself for these things because I won't hold myself accountable or continue to work hard or whatever it might be. And so we kind of withhold forgiveness, but it becomes a power play and it does nothing but keep us connected to painful experiences and people and relationships that don't serve us. And so one of the biggest things that we know about forgiveness and the research that's been done is that there's kind of phases of the process and really grief is the key initial part of forgiveness, really giving yourself space to name whether it's a situation, a relationship, an experience within a relationship, something about yourself, it is really giving yourself permission to talk about whatever it is, to feel all of those feelings fully, to be angry, to be upset, to, you know, if we think about somebody that if they're acquiring their disability from some sort of accident, let's say, and now they're going, well, if I hadn't have done this, then this thing wouldn't have happened. And so they're upset with themselves. They're constantly holding on to that. It's needing to feel this, feel this idea that I can't control my life in that way. I thought if I could, if I could rewrite the past, it would be different, but I have no control over that. This is what's happening. And I need to grieve that. I need to grieve the loss that came from this and the loss of my control here to make it anything other than what it is. And then there's the space of moving into seeing yourself, seeing the other person, seeing the world is bigger than whatever that situation is. And one of the things that I think is really true about forgiveness is it's not, I suppose if you're forgiving yourself, you are also quote unquote, the the wrongdoer, but it isn't about the wrongdoer. Forgiveness isn't, let's say it was somebody else that was driving the car and they were drunk or they were, you know, something happened, they weren't paying attention, they hit you and now you've acquired a disability or, you know, something to that effect. You being unable or unwilling to forgive that person isn't hurting them, it's hurting you. It keeps you tethered to the pain. Mm -hmm. So the forgiveness is about you releasing yourself from what happened. And it's not saying it's okay. It's saying, I just don't want that to be the only story in my narrative. I don't want every new chapter I write to keep flipping back to that page because it's not the most powerful part about my story. It's the same as us saying whatever the disability is, isn't what we lead with. As we talked about, you know, person first language and Uh the big movement around that over the last decade of, you know, my mom has bipolar disorder and she will say that she'll say like, I'm bipolar. And I'll say, okay, when you lead with that, how does that feel versus when you say, I'm, you know, somebody that does this and this and this, and I have bipolar disorder. What's Uh the difference in the feeling? And so, you know, I think for a lot of us, it's that piece. What I'll say about forgiveness as a whole is it is kind of, you know, if you think about like an ice bath, I went to a, like a spa place that had an ice bath. My husband took me there for my birthday and it was like, all right, we're going to do the sauna and then we're going to do this thing. And I'm like, okay, this is so fun, but I wanted to do it. You know, I'm like, all right, as a, as a therapist, like you read about all these things, these changes, I'm going to do it. 
but no matter how much mental prep work, no matter how much, you know, research I've done and how important it is, no matter what it is, there's a, there's a time I just have to get in. I just have to do it mm -hmm. with forgiveness. I think one of the really tricky parts is you need to feel your feelings. You need to move through them, but then there comes a day where you just have to decide you're going to release it. I'm just not going to let this be. I, I imagine for me, I used to be really angry about a lot of my trauma and then also sort of layered into that, just a very anxious human. And I used to imagine that this like weird cat, like death eater, if anybody's a Harry Potter fan would like, it was like a weird figure, but it would come to my house every day and give me a big bundle of black balloons. And those black balloons represented everything that I wasn't releasing, my anxious thoughts, things I hadn't forgiven, people from my past, judgments against myself. And I would hold them and I would take them like it was a gift. And I'd be like, gosh, well, I don't, I don't want to be rude. You know, I don't know what these things go. I don't want to, you know, so I'd hold them. But all I could see in front of me were the black balloons. And every day I'd get a new bouquet of them. I constantly had them. They were coming in all wow. the time. They were flooding, you know, as soon as if I did release them, I'd get them again. And so eventually I had to make the decision that not only am I going to practice releasing them when they come, but I'm going to start to separate from and not answer the door every time it's coming with the next bouquet. And I think that's what forgiveness ultimately is. It's being able to hold the balloons long enough that you can validate everything that they bring up for you, that you can recognize what happened sucked, whatever it is that we've gone through. It did. It sucked. It's not okay. And you can be okay. You can make the choice to let those things go. And then again, you, you get to that point where you decide, I'm going to release these. I know they're going to come back. I'm going to have an invitation the rest of my life to be angry, anxious, upset, you know, hypervigilant about X, Y, and Z. And every time they come, I'm going to give myself grace to know I might hold them a little longer than I might need to or want to. But the choice I get is to release them so that I don't live the rest of my life looking through them. Wow. That was such a good visual. That's, um, wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's how I process. So that's the only way I see the world is through this very strange cat figure given well, balloons. I'm glad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that is, that's such a, a great visual of, you know, them being black balloons. And, um, yeah. you know, when I, when I think of, of black and I'm wearing a black and white shirt now, which is really funny. I have on black pants, yeah. but I think of, you yeah. know, you think of darkness, you think of heavy, um, yeah. you know, so for those things, um, you know, to be, to, to, for you to associate those things with the black balloons, that was really, uh, a really, uh, powerful visual, uh, for me. And I, um, I majored in psychology too. So I, um, you know, I can really, <laughs> really, uh, appreciate those, uh, types of, uh, visual analogies. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I really appreciated this, this conversation. I felt it was very necessary to have, um, and since it was a little bit of a heavy topic, I wanted to mm -hmm. uh, end with a final question of who or what makes you smile? <laughs> mm. I mean, I think so. Uh, obviously, there's the easy answer, which is my daughter, because yes. she is hilarious and wonderful and makes me <laughs> smile all the time. But I think one of the things that now she has picked up on, she started to be able to watch we still have to break them down over like she gets an hour a week now of TV 
uh, which is big time for her. So she can watch a Disney movie in, you know, two weeks, but she watches and gets to experience anytime something is happening where things work out in a movie. It makes like, I, I was the person that watched like the holiday movies because I just with trauma and this is what a lot of people do that have experienced trauma and loss is we we seek out things where we know everything works out there's a comfort in that and so rom-coms are really comfortable for people because Uh you know exactly what to expect you know how it's going to play out you know that things work out and you're looking for that it's like a hit of dopamine in the brain so I think the thing that makes me smile now is when it's my husband. Everly, my daughter and I watching a movie and I just, we were watching the princess and the frog recently and they're looking (laughs) over at me, watching me watch the movie, knowing things are working out and they're just like beaming with smiles at me. So it's just this like beautiful, like things are working out. I feel really secure. And my little kid is over here, just like witnessing (laughs) me as a person and like getting a glimpse of who I am. Just like, are you good mom? so good everything you know and so I love I love that oh that's great I love it that's so mm-hmm. cool <laughs> um and I I wrote that question out and I thought about it myself and as you said you know you can come up with the the uh the easy answers of yeah you know my right. friends my family um my friends children uh you know again when I was out over the weekend with my friends um I didn't even realize it but I was talking to their uh she's nine i think and i was just we were at a table at a restaurant and we were just talking i didn't realize her mom was taking a picture of us talking (laughs) and she sent it to me and i said oh my gosh like that was you know that was really cool and and i Mm -hmm. i saw because we went uh for dinner and we were down at the at the beach and it was um sunset and i noticed when she turned her head she had like a streak of like glitter in her hair and I was just like hey like what like where'd you where'd that come from <laughs> and she mm-hmm. was telling me how she went was invited to a sleepover for a birthday party and they had somebody come and, and put these strands of glitter in like their the hair fairy and, hair yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know and I was like oh wow like that's really cool I said I just saw it when the sun hit it when you turned your head so she came and sat next to me and told me the whole story and you know so it was a cute picture of us of us laughing so like that makes me smile and um the the water I went uh, as I said, we were at the beach and I went down a few hours early and just hung out at the beach. I live in New Jersey and it was like very windy and probably in the fifties, which mm. felt like in the forties here. Uh, but it was, it was fine. I had, a, <laughs> had an amazing day <laughs> and just being near the water, um, you know, always makes me smile and, and just brings me, uh, such peace and, and comfort. And, uh, so that's, that's my, my thing of what makes me smile. <laughs> so, I love that. Yeah. So I, um, I thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I really enjoyed, um, you know, hearing, uh, your perspective and, and your, um, your advice, uh, for, for those who, um, have acquired disabilities and, um, just anybody I think who is, uh, dealing with a tough time in general can, can really relate to Mm -hmm. all of this, to this conversation, um, and just uh, taking these little pieces of uh, these these gems of of information with them, and and um, you know, getting them through difficult times that they may be experiencing. So, uh, Kira, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate you uh, speaking with me today, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. No, well, thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. <laughs>
This concludes this episode of the Our View podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on all social media platforms at Our View for Life. That's O-U-R-V-I-E-W, the number four, L-I-F-E. If you have a topic or a person, or if you are a person who would like to be interviewed for an upcoming episode of the podcast, send us a DM on Instagram, send us a message on Facebook, or you can email me at ourviewforlife at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.